Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com I'm Mick Garris and this is the fun size postmortem ask Mick anything so we're not doing interviews on these this is every other week between our interview shows but uh, our friend and producer Joe Russo is here to relay questions that have been sent to me over social media and we invite you to send those questions to uh, on Instagram at postmortemgram and on Twitter at postmortemmg so we welcome your questions ask anything you want and I'll try to answer and I'm going to grill you on them. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I feel the sizzle. Yes, yes. Uh, well, so one thing that came up on our social media a couple of weeks ago, which you actually answered online, but I figured we should do it for our podcast listener base in case they're not hounding our Twitter, uh, which I've always wondered, you know, when I grew up watching this movie and saw this, you know, one scene as a kid, uh, John Squires of Bloody Disgusting had asked you, uh, whether you'd actually intended to include Freddy in the bounty hunter transformation gag in Critters 2. And I know the answer to this because you've told yes. me, but for the record. Yeah, well, uh, actually using uh, Robert Englund right. in Freddy makeup and right. being a character yeah, that comes to life. Yeah, because the way the scene works, he sees the Freddy cutout. It's a standee in front of a video to, stand. Yeah, and his, yeah. Fa- his face starts to change. Starts and to transform. You think he's going to become Freddy. Yeah, uh, a lot of people said, oh, why didn't you do that? Well, for one thing, it's a Critters movie. Right. Um, and suddenly if Freddy Krueger is in this Critters movie, right. all the balance of the storytelling is thrown uh, aside. Right. It, right. it just turns catawampus. Yes, and it, it just Freddy doesn't make running sense. Loose in a Critters movie. Yeah. Also, yeah. which by the way would be really fun, but would I be fun. totally understand why you did. It. I don't want to make that movie. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> um, I, I get it. And also, it's a matter of then you have to hire Robert Englund right. and the makeup effects and all that goes with that. I don't think that New Line Cinema was willing to do that. Well, not with Bob Shea's budgets back in those days. Well, that movie cost $4 million, right, which was right. healthy for a, a New Line movie, yeah. and especially a sequel to a movie that grossed about $10 million, right, right. which was really good. Um, but there was for, never yeah. any, like, oh, this is really funny, We maybe we should do this, and then we but costed then, it out and it didn't make sense? Then or? you go past the gag. Yeah. The gag is... Beginning to transform into Freddy Krueger. No, no, no. <laughs> and once you're there, then where do you go? You know, it's like, uh, it's just, it becomes 
a heavy weight that right. you have to bear. Right. right. So uh, there I was never works, a plan. I think it works perfectly as a gag. I think it's a, a great example of less is more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I agree that less is more, particularly in this case. And, and uh, the standee is great. Oh, less is more. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, staying on Critters for just a second, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Beer 4 asks... Uh, since you got your start at New Line with Critters, uh, was there ever any talk of you doing a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel? Well, um, not one of the features, but I did the second episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Right. Uh, so, and I did wraparounds for three of the shows yeah. uh, as well. So I worked with Robert Englund doing the wraparounds on, on that show. You are part of the Nightmare on Elm Street lore. Uh, yes, in the the not so good TV series, <laughs> um, which had uh, you want to talk about budgets? Those were really right. low. I've, you said they were yeah. tiny, teeny they, tiny. They were teeny tiny. Yeah, uh, it was really fun to do, and I felt very indebted to New Line and to Bob Shea to give me my first feature. Yeah. It was not the company that started my career, though. I mean, I I started. Working on amazing stories, right, so that right. was uh, that was what led to doing critics. How did they approach you for Freddy's Nightmares? Like, what was the? Well, a friend of mine, Gil Adler, was producing the series, and um, so I had just done, you know, uh, Critters Two, and then I uh, actually, yeah, it was not long after that, and I was working on some other things, um, and so Gil invited me. I had introduced him to Toby Hooper, who did the first one, and Tom McLaughlin, who did the third one. It was uh, the third one shot. It aired second. Oh, interesting. And then mine was uh, aired third. Um, Why do you think they flipped them around like that? I I think Tommy's was better than mine, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I mean, it's it's really good. He did a great job, as did Toby. And, uh, you know, mine, it's not my favorite piece of work I've done, but, you know, it's... You make work for public consumption and you acknowledge it. That's that's true. And yeah. but but you know, but I remember seeing the documentary, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, the four hour the documentary, four hour Never Sleeping. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're there. Uh, so yeah, you know, I'm, I'm you are there. you are part of that legacy. Uh, yeah, for, for better or for, for worse. worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So I have I have a couple questions about uh, one of I think your legacy projects for better. Uh, which is Masters of Horror. Ah. Um, and, you know, we get a lot of questions on social media about Masters and when's Masters coming back and will you bring back Masters and yada, yada, yada. And I keep trying to say, Nightmare Cinema is the spiritual successor. <laughs> wait, wait for that this summer. Right. Uh, but but um, I do think it would be great to, like, get into a couple of questions about Masters. Sure. And, and, you know, for the record, so everyone knows kind of where everything stands. Sure. Uh, so, so a couple fun questions about it first, though. Um, what, so, so Zach Quam asks, what director did you want to see direct an episode of Masters of Horror that didn't? There were a few of them. Um, uh, Wes Craven wanted Mm -hmm. to do one and we could never work out the the schedule that accommodated him. George Romero was going to do Heckle's Tale. And again, it was a scheduling thing. He was going to do it. We were booked it. I'd written it for him, uh, and and uh, he got offered a movie that fell apart. Oh, but it was too late. That happened to him all the time. So many times. Yeah. This guy just 
had the worst luck with the studios and the like. Um, I would love to have had George. Uh, Guillermo and I talked about him doing one. That would have been amazing. So there were Back a handful. Back then he'd be gettable. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Yeah. And he's such a horror fan and buff. Sure, and, sure. And just so filled with passion and, and love for the genre and for yeah. monsters. And, and oh things. my gosh, I can't even, the K&B monsters that he would have created would have been. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Really great. Absolutely. But, you know, a lot of people mourn Masters of Horror. And I would so much rather celebrate that we made 26 of them. Yeah. Yeah, then to mourn that there weren't be yeah. any more, you know. Yeah. I, I'm really. It was a great job during, before, during, and after. The whole yeah. process was incredible because you know the inmates had the keys to the asylum. Yeah. Well, let's put a hypothetical hat on for if if there was going to be another Masters of Horror, or maybe if there was a Nightmare Cinema TV series in the future. Uh, a lot of people have been asking <clears throat> out of the new breed of horror that directors that are out there who are some of the people that you might consider uh that that have made movies in the last few years that you'd want to invite well i don't know you know uh, there the masters of horror philosophy was somebody who had a career of doing this stuff for right. years and years and, right and they're not a whole lot of people in the genre who have done that yeah. uh, that are doing contemporary work they're great people i mean i'd love to get andre overdahl to do one mm, yeah. uh, i think he's really talented neil marshall would be fantastic yeah. guillermo of course sure. is still making yeah. magnificent unbelievable oscar winning stuff oscar winner. so um you know there's plenty of talent out there um but if we do Nightmare Cinema to continue uh, as a, a series or if there are sequels that we, we do, I'd love to bring people in from around the globe. Yeah, The yeah. title, Masters of Horror, inherently requires people who have a history of it. Right. Uh, Nightmare I, Cinema opens it up. It can be broader. Yeah. Much broader. And and the point of the first movie was to make it international. We have two American directors, a British director, a Cuban director, and a Japanese director. And yeah. I'd love to expand that even more. Yeah. And I'd love to mix up the genders and all of that as, totally. as much as possible. Well, I mean, one, one thing that I think people probably don't know, going back five years to when we first met and first started working on Nightmare Cinemas, we had a huge list of people yeah. that were interested in being a part of it. And, and there were... Uh, some really really exciting names on there. Some of the people you already mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and and um, you know, so I hopefully we can do more so that we can get some of those people to be a part yeah. of it because that I think that would just be great. Well, let's so, see what happens in June. Yeah. So so everyone who's listening has to go see it in the theater or get right. it on VOD. It's it's called Nightmare <laughs> Cinema after all, yep. and you want to see it in a movie theater. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. If it's playing near them. Yes. Uh, so so. The I guess so that brings us to like the the big meaty question about Masters of Horror, which is which you know I've heard you tell the story uh, before, but I think it'd be great to just talk a, a little bit more in depth because I think everyone knows the origin story of the Masters of Horror dinners where Guillermo you know yes. said the Masters of Horror wish you a happy birthday yeah yeah but how you know then it became you know after a couple of the dinners it was let's maybe do an anthology series. But you sold it pretty much in the room in like the first meeting, right? I did, I did. But but 
there was a lot that had to go before that. We had to get all these guys to sign documents saying, if this show goes, I will make one if I'm available. Right. So, so how did that process start? Well, it started with, you know, I came up with a concept mm-hmm. of everybody doing a one-hour movie that, that it's like uh, a Twilight Zone or an Amazing Stories, but all horror stories and superstars in the genre making it. Right. And part of that was if you get these guys, you can't interfere. You know, it's not going to be a lot of money. It's not going to be a lot of time, but it's going to be them doing their best work. Yeah. Um, so it took a while, but I got a lot of the people, uh, who ended up doing the show to sign off on that. But we went into three companies within three days and pitched it and all three of them wanted it. But Anchor Bay said, how much and when can we start? (laughs) And I've never Uh, had a, a, a meeting like that since. Or before. Yeah. And I, I don't think say, that'll those, ever those happen. Are, those yeah. are rare. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen Well, again. I think that just goes to show how special it really it was. Well, and there was no network attached. There was no right. showtime. Right. Anchor Bay was going to do it for DVD and hopefully find a network. Oh, so, wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so, so, so and showtime, showtime came in a lot later. Nobody was looking for an, a horror anthology well, show. No one is ever television. looking for a yeah, horror that's anthology true. show. That's true. Um, but Showtime... Anchor Bay took it to them and said, you know, uh, we want a license fee. And they basically Showtime paid 10% of what it cost to make the show. And it was sold all around the world. Right. And did the the primary thing was DVD in those days. But having them pay so little allowed us to say, okay, but you cannot have any creative involvement. Yeah. And they didn't. I I remember when I first saw... Uh, the first couple episodes at, at, in Phoenix at the International Horror and Sci-Fi Film Festival, and I was blown away because I hadn't seen TV, I think, before be that horrific and that, you know. Well, Tales from the Crypt went for it, but it was... Sure, sure, but not in a, not in the same more way. There was, there was sense, more, there yeah. was a wink and a nod with Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. This was, this was, uh, this was true horror. We went there. Yeah, yeah. you went there. Uh, and then, so I guess getting into, you know, because... Basically, after the the first two seasons, uh, there was a lot of things that happened with the writer strike and becoming Fear itself. And well, I that's just, another story we'll talk about another time. I yeah. Think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a long. Well, we can do it now. If I think let's do it now. Let's, All right. Let's, let's do it. Let's now. do it now. Um, basically, when Anchor Bay sold the show to Lionsgate, Lionsgate didn't. They wanted Showtime to double their license fee. And Showtime gave them the finger. So <laughs> we don't need this. Right. And so then they decided, well, let's see what else is available and let's go to a commercial network, which is antithetical of the philosophy of to letting the philosophy. everyone do what they want to do. Not yeah. just do what they want to do, but uncensored. Right. Right. So you're not only dealing with commercial television and having commercials interrupting. Mm-hmm. You're going to have studio input from Lionsgate. Yeah. You're going to have network input, not just from standards and practices, but also creatively. And you're going to have advertiser right. input. Right. And so I thought there's no way. Yeah, you guys make it. Uh, you have my blessings, but I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. But Stuart Gordon was one of the guys who said, look, Twilight Zone did it, Outer Limits did it. We can do a modern version of this. Yeah. And I was convinced to give it a try. 
Well, it was complicated by the matter of the writer's strike was looming. Right. It was going to happen. Right. Happened on Halloween that year. So we got 13 scripts that were done, myself and all of the others. There was no staff of writers. They were all done independently. Right. And so we got first drafts of all 13 before Halloween. But there were rewrites and things to be done and more work to be done and after everyone that. Everyone had to put pencils down. Right. I, so what happened was the producing partners that I had, who also represented me as managers, yeah. um, went forward with it and said, you know, you can still produce it and give notes and stuff. But my whole function as a producer was to be a cheerleader and a supporter of these filmmakers and the writers and to do the work myself that would be needed beyond what the original writers had done. So they brought in non-union writers from Canada. And, you know, the show, it quickly became apparent to me that this was going to disregard the philosophy of Masters of Horror. Right. There was a whole reason to do it in the first place. I didn't want to do this to make money. I, you know, it's nice to have a job that pays you. But I wanted to do it because these guys were so happy making these films this yeah. way. Yeah, And... And so they just took it and ran with it. And I said, I can't be a part of this. It became very clear that all these notes were coming in now from all these different sources. And it broke my heart more than any other job circumstance I've had in my life yeah. to have to say goodbye. Well, but I guess on a happy note and, and having seen it firsthand, you kind of got to bring that philosophy of giving the filmmakers the chance to do what they wanted to Complete, do uh, yeah. on a smaller scale, on a smaller uh, scale, but, but with nightmare yeah. cinema. And, and you know, I, I having just been able to be a che the cheerleading producer on the sidelines. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I developed great relationships with, with all five of you filmmakers. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, I just got to be that cheerleader and kind of help them do what they wanted to do. Creatively. Absolutely. And, yeah. You know, and, and that, is is what it's all about i mean at this point in my career i've done a lot of things for a lot of reasons and this is something i can do because you know i just love it yeah well on that note on that note well this is uh the uh fun size postmortem ask mick anything and uh to get your questions answered uh go to postmortem mg on twitter and uh postmortem, postmortem gram. gram on instagram and Joe Russo, our producer and interrogator uh, on this, uh, thank you. You're, thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.